Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. I appreciate the enthusiasm. Uh, My name is Mike, if you're new to our church, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're just so glad that you're here uh, today uh, and believe that the Lord has a word for you, for me, for all of us. I want to give a shout out to those of you watching online and from our different locations all around the D.C. metro area. We're continuing in a series that we're calling The Beauty of Faith. And this is a series where we're studying the book of James, or more accurately, the letter of James. He's writing this letter uh, to communities of Christians uh, kind of spread throughout uh, the, the region. And, uh, and the reason we're calling it the beauty of faith is because while James is a really challenging letter, there's a lot of very blunt, direct challenges, uh, specifically about Uh, kind of putting your money where your mouth is, living out what you claim to believe. Uh, James really presses in and challenges uh, our profession of faith. Is it, are you a real one? Do you actually show any evidence in the way that you live your life that you are uh, a born-again Christian, that you have genuine faith? So there's a challenge in that, but there's also an invitation because we also see in James this portrait of this beautiful portrait of what genuine faith actually looks like in real life. The kind of faith that uh, God wants us to experience, that we hopefully want to experience, but that we also want our friends, our neighbors, our family members, the culture around us to actually observe and be able to experience. We want people to see in our lives the beauty of genuine faith. And so we've been looking at that, studying that in, uh, in this letter of James, and uh, hopefully uh, the Lord has been saying some things to us and doing some things in our lives and in our hearts. And so we're going to be picking up in James chapter 4, verse 1. So if you brought uh, your own copy of the Bible, uh, you got a phone or whatever, meet me in James chapter 4. If you don't have anything, we got the verses up on the screen for you. But before we jump into James chapter 4, verse 1, I want to read this uh, quote to you. Now, this is from a 17th century Jewish philosopher who's observing Christianity, okay? Now, I wish I put this on the slide because this is a lot, all right? It's not long, it's just a lot of words, all right? So this is a Jewish philosopher who is making a comment based on his observation of Christianity in the 1600s. You ready? Listen to what he said. I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, he describes the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity of all, or, or charity to all men. He says, I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Some of y'all are like, man. Others of y'all are like, I have no idea what that dude just said. All right? <laughs> Let me give you my paraphrase. This is my paraphrase of what he just said. It's interesting to me that Christians are more known for conflict than they are known for Christ-likeness. Sound familiar? That's in the 1600s. But it could also describe, let's just talk our context, American Christianity in the 21st century, especially over the last few years. That I think, and if you're here, you're watching, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're new to church, maybe you've been kind of observing and exploring, maybe you would say this, that your observation as you look at social media, as you look at news headlines, as we, Lord help us, as we enter another election year. My God, I just might go on a midterm mission trip just to just be out of the country for a year. As we enter into another election season and we observe, right, how Christians in particular interact, not just with non-Christians, but interact with one another between different tribes and different camps. A lot of people would say, I feel like Christianity today is more characterized by conflict than Christ-likeness. And that shouldn't be. Now, I started out by leaning in on my people, Christians, right? If you're here, you're not a Christian, you're not off the hook. Why? Because all of us have to engage in conflict. 
All of us are in relationships, all different kinds of relationships. And in all of those relationships, we're going to experience some kind of conflict. And here's the thing. All conflict isn't bad. Now, some of y'all don't agree with that. Because of what you've been through, whatever, you just avoid conflict at all costs. And you know what happens when you avoid conflict? It grows into drama. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. It grows into drama. You know what drama is? Drama is the result of unresolved conflict. That's what drama is. Can we just prepare ourselves for Thanksgiving real quick? Drama is the result of unresolved conflict. So not all conflict is bad. There is a healthy way to engage conflict in order to bring resolution to it. But there are some bad ways of engaging in conflict, some unhealthy ways, some ungodly ways of engaging in conflict. And this is what James wants to address in chapter four. Now, let me catch you up on the context because we're, we're jumping in midstream in chapter four. James has been addressing this issue of conflict all the way back up in chapter 3. We've already studied this. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, James is warning Christians, you need to guard the way you talk. Particularly when you're in conflict situations. Why? Not only because you might be tempted to speak in an ungodly way, but you might be tempted to speak in a destructive way. He says, your tongue is like a fire. Some of us have experienced that before. He says, guard the way you talk. Then in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, he says, now here's what the wisdom of God looks like in the midst of conflict. And he contrasts that. We studied this. He contrasts that with a, a, a kind of uh, a fake wisdom, right, of the world that engages conflict in a different way. And he actually says that kind of uh, um, uh, wisdom, that way of handling conflict is unspiritual. And he says demonic. We'll come back to that. And so he contrasts it with the wisdom of God in conflict. And listen to what he says here. He, he basically is answering the question, what does healthy conflict look like? In other words, uh, if, if you were to look at people in conflict, whether in a family or in relationships or on social media, if you were to look at people in conflict, how can you tell who actually has godly wisdom? Here's how you can tell. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. That means righteous. It's aligned with God's holy character. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, there is a harvest of righteousness. There is is sanctification. There is godliness that is the result of those who actually sow peace. And he contrasts that earlier with what happens when you don't handle conflict in godly way. He says it produces just disorder and strife. So we're jumping in chapter 4, verse 1, and James now is going to go further down the funnel. He's going to take us deeper as we think about how to actually handle the conflict that shows up in our relationships. And so before we dive in to chapter 4, verse 1, I want to give all of us here watching online at any of our locations, would you just take a moment, since all of us have to inevitably engage conflict Would you just take a moment and say, God, would you speak to me personally? Would you give me a specific word today? Take a moment between you and God and just ask him to speak to you personally through his word. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, that your word does not return void. It accomplishes everything you send it forth to accomplish. And so, Lord, we pray that you would not only speak to us through your word, but you would work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James chapter 4, verse 1, he starts out with a very good question. Here's the question. What causes quarrels And what causes fights among you? 
Now pause there for a minute. We don't know the specific issues he's addressing. But apparently in these different communities of Christians, there was conflict. There were different issues. And so James, uh, who's writing to to address these different churches, he pulls all that together and and he wants to address how they're handling conflict so that this letter could be distributed to the uh, different churches. Now, again, we don't know what the specific, uh, specific issue is, but I want you to think about this question in your own context. Some of y'all are like, I don't want to, but you're here. You have to, okay? Think about this question in your own context. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, I can think about a couple different answers in my own family. One of them is very recent, as in yesterday. An empty waffle box in the freezer. Why? I don't understand. Or, I won't say who, but out of good intention, decides, I'm going to put your towel and washcloth in the dirty clothes, because you need, but doesn't switch it out. And so now I'm in the shower, and in the time when I need it most, I'm left vulnerable. And it's actually triggering. When I was in college, University of Maryland, shout out University of Maryland. I went to University of Maryland College Park. When I was at University of Maryland, I was in a dorm in Elton, and I was in the shower one day, which is, you know, like dorm showers, right? Um, and my roommate decided to play a prank. Him and some of my boys came into the, uh, the bathroom, and they took my towel and everything and just left. <laughs> left. I literally had to rip off the shower curtain and wrap it around myself and go back to my room in a public. It was disgusting. So it's a little bit triggering, all right? Sorry. That was my moment. That wasn't yours. It was mine, okay? What causes quarrels and fights among you in your context? Now, all of us have those, those kind of small, funny things like I just mentioned, those little things. This is why, by the way, I always tell people, if you're dating or you are interested in dating, you want to get married, maybe you want to get married to the person you're dating, maybe not. That's a whole nother story, a whole nother sermon, right? But let's say you want to get married. This is why I tell people all the time, you're not ready to pursue marriage until you've had conflict. You need to date at least long enough to have some conflict. Because conflict shows you something about yourself. It shows you something about this other person because they're going to be little small things, but they're also going to be some more significant, challenging, hurtful, painful situations where there's conflict. And we've all experienced that before. What causes quarrels and conflict among you at work, in your family, on social media? Now, to this point, we've been focusing on the kind of external circumstances that give context for our conflict, but those external circumstances, according to James, don't fully explain our conflict. They are the context of our conflict, but they are not the ultimate cause of our conflict. And so James says, if you're going to answer that question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is there so much drama? Why is there unresolved conflict? Why do you respond the way you do? James says there are two things that if you actually understand and embrace these two things, it will dramatically revolutionize how you engage conflict. It may not help you avoid all conflict. It may not necessarily alleviate or resolve the conflict you currently have, but it will absolutely change your experience of that conflict. Two things. The first thing he says, if you want to handle conflict in a godly way, you have to start with the right problem. The right problem. You need an accurate diagnosis of what the primary problem is. And James gives it to us. He says, what causes your fights and your quarrels? He says it right here in verse one. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says the external conflict in your life that goes unresolved 
is actually the result of internal conflict that's happening in your own heart. And he describes what he means in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, it's possible that he's talking about some people that were actually resorting to physical violence, but most likely he's not talking about literal murder here. He's using hyperbole to describe how intense and hostile their conflict has become. I actually think he's echoing Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about if you have anger in your heart, if you have rage in your heart toward another person, you are guilty of murder. Why? Because you just haven't given full expression to the full range of that anger. But the same seed, the same root is in your heart. James is using hyperbole to describe how intense and hostile their conflict have become. And here's here's what's happening. They're not even trying to resolve the conflict anymore. They're just in attack mode. Some of us know what that's like. They're just in attack mode. They're not attacking the problem. Now they've just resorted to attacking each other. And his point is this, that there is something in your own heart that is driving you to respond the way you're responding. Here's how I'll put it. You are your biggest relationship problem. That's actually the the title of this sermon. Your biggest relationship problem, spoiler alert, is you. Let me put it another way. You are your main problem in your relationships. Now, notice, I did not say you are the main problem in your relationships because some of us are in situations and there's conflict where there's stuff that's outside of our control. And there are crazy people out here that be really talking crazy and doing crazy stuff. So, so I'm not saying you are the main problem. What I'm saying is, and I think James is saying, is you are your main problem. You are your main problem in your relationships. You are your biggest relationship problem. Now, there's several factors involved in the way we handle conflict. And it's important to, to bring these up. Our upbringing. It influences how we handle conflict. So, for example, the patterns that we learned from our family. In fact, for some of you, quarreling and fighting is so normal that it doesn't even register to you how serious it is. It's just what you saw. It's, it's, it's how people, how they operated in your family or in your neighborhood. It was always a 10 out of 10. That's just so normal to you that you don't realize how serious it is. Yelling is normal to you. There's nothing wrong with that. It's similar. I shared this before. In my family, busyness was normal to me. And I would say unhealthy busyness. It was always go, 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 go. Hustle, hustle, hustle. It was always ministry, ministry, ministry. We were always out. We were always moving. That was normal to me. Unhealthy was normal to me. So healthy was weird to me. You follow me? Unhealthy was normal to me. So healthy people, listen, that constant hustle and grind was normal to me. So anybody that had healthy rhythms was lazy to me. This is how some of you are when it comes to conflict. You've become so used to unhealthy conflict because of your upbringing that you don't even know how to operate in a healthy way. So our upbringing shapes how and influences how we handle conflict. Trauma influences the way we handle conflict. Because a situation today can trigger in your brain an event from the past. If for those families that have adopted kids or, or, or fostered children, you see this for kids who have gone through trauma. Some of you teachers, you, you see this with kids who have gone through trauma. They don't know how to regulate their emotions. They struggle to resolve conflict because something can just trigger in their brain traumatic events from the past. And that's related to this fact that there are physical or physiological factors that influence how we handle conflict as well. And listen, when we're trying to change how we handle conflict, 
We need to pay attention to all of that. And this is one of the reasons why it can be helpful to meet with a trained counselor to help you identify and sort through those different factors and influences. So yes, there are social, psychological, and physical factors that influence us when we're angry. But James is getting all the way down to the root cause. And James is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate cause of our conflict in terms of the ultimate cause of of us responding the way we respond is ultimately spiritual. It's what North African theologian, fourth century theologian uh, Augustine called inordinate desires. These are desires that have become too powerful in your heart. And James says the ultimate reason you're responding the way you're responding is because you want something and you're not getting it. The ultimate reason why you respond so quickly to that email and you just and you blast the person that sent it to you is because of something you want and you're not getting it. The ultimate reason why you use such bitter sarcasm, the ultimate reason why you give family members the silent treatment, the ultimate reason why you handle conflict the way way you handle it is because there is something deep down that you want and you are not getting it. And so rather than seeing that person that you're in conflict with, that spouse, that coworker, that friend at school, rather than seeing that person the way God sees them, in that moment, you just see them as a wall in the way of what you want. And you're allowing yourself to be controlled by that desire rather than being controlled by God. And this, there's all kinds of desires that drive us to respond the way we respond. It might be, a de- I have a desire for respect. And so if I feel disrespected, then it's going to pop off. It could be any other desire. Give me out loud here, other locations, I'll, I'll hear you in the spirit. Uh, give me an example. What's a desire that could motivate the way we handle conflict? I want something. Say it again. Affirmation. affirmation. I want affirmation. What else? Money. I want money. Honest. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> I want money. I want money. I want more money. I want this raise. What else? Connection. What? Fear. Fear. Control. Control. Respect. Respect. Okay, y'all are very interactive because this is y'all like, this is me. I get it, right? Yeah. There's all these desires that grow too powerful in our hearts and they begin to control us more than God. And here's how this works. The desire grows into something ungodly. And a lot of counselors describe it this way. Here's the progression. It starts as a desire. I want... All the things we were just mentioning. I want this thing. And that desire then becomes an expectation. So it moves from I want to I deserve. What that means is now you owe me. I want respect. You owe me respect. I want connection. You owe me connection. I want some peace and quiet. You owe me peace and quiet. I want more advanced communication. Thanksgiving comes around every year, and y'all just now sending out what we need at at dinner. I'm sorry, that's just me, right? I want more advanced communication that becomes an expectation. Now, I deserve more. You owe me advanced communication, and that now becomes from I want to I deserve to I demand. Now it's non-negotiable. I demand. And then that becomes, then I judge. I judge because you're not giving me what I want. You're not giving me what I deserve. You're not giving me what I demand. And so now I judge you. And this is what James talks about down in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, which we don't have time to get into. But David Powlison, right, who's a counselor, he is commenting on verses 11 and 12. And listen to what he says. He says, we judge others. We criticize, nitpick, nag, attack, condemn because we literally play God. We act exactly like the adversary who seeks to usurp God's throne and who acts as the accuser of the brethren. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms we establish. 
Oh, so we take God's place now and and in our self-righteousness now, we begin to judge you or judge them because I'm not getting what I want. And so now from my moral high horse, now I move from I want to I deserve, to I demand, to I judge, now to I punish. I punish. And I'm not, I'm not talking about setting appropriate boundaries for destructive patterns of behavior. That's healthy and it's helpful. We, some of us need to put boundaries in our relationships. But as I was praying through this, I just felt the Lord put this on my heart. Listen, for some of us, our boundaries are really just selfish ways of punishing people for hurting us. Hello. So in our culture, and I'm thankful for this, we're having more conversation about healthy boundaries. That's good. But there are some of us, we hide behind boundaries so that we don't have to be patient, so that we don't have to be kind, so that we don't have to be gracious. We hide behind boundaries so that we don't have to be godly, so that we don't have to pour out the kind of mercy and forgiveness that God has poured out on us. And we say it's in the name of boundaries. Now, this is not everybody, but for some of you, the Holy Spirit might be showing you, oh, that's what's been happening. I've just been giving the silent treatment. I've just been, I've just been participating in and yielding to cancel culture. I've just been cutting people off because I'm hurt and I'm upset. And rather than doing the hard work of being Christ-like and pursuing resolution, then I just hide behind boundaries. And within those boundaries, unresolved conflict festers and just grows into drama. And you're allowing yourself to be controlled by unmet desires rather than being controlled by God. And James says, listen, James says it's even affecting your relationship with God. That's why he says, as we continue here, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And his point is not that God will always give you whatever you ask for. His point is you're so focused on other people that you're not going to God. His point is that you don't even trust God to meet your deepest needs. And so you take matters into your own hands because you're not able to get it from these people. And so you lash out on your husband or your wife. You lash out on your roommate. You lash out on your dad. You have these unmet desires that now have taken control of your heart and you don't trust God enough to meet those desires and so you take it out on, you place that weight on other people. And sometimes we do without even communicating it that we heap these expectations on the people around us. We don't even articulate it. But we just walk around, you owe me, and they don't even know. Now, How many of you have ever been in this situation? You've been on an elevator that was very clearly and very obviously full. And the doors are closing as they should at that point because no one else can get on. However, somebody sticks a limb in between the door and they say, is this full? And you say, in your heart, you're looking at the same elevator I'm looking at. And they say, oh, good, there's room. And they whistle to the rest of their crew to come make their way into the elevator. You've been in this situation before, and then you do something that you never, ever do any other time. You look at the max capacity. (laughs) I know. You never do that just on a regular Tuesday on the elevator. But in those moments, you're like, this don't, this don't feel, I don't know if we built for this. Like, this is, this seems like it's going to be problematic. Here's the thing. Your relationships have a max capacity. And here's part of our problem when it comes to conflict, that we allow these desires to grow so big, so powerful, so strong, they control us, and now we put all the weight of our desire on another human being that was never designed to meet our deepest human needs. Now, they can serve us, they can love us, they can bless us, they cannot carry the weight 
of all of your desire and your expectations and your demands. There's only one person who is built for that, and he is your creator. He's your good father who loves you and knows what you need. And listen, so often in the heat of conflict, when we see red and our heart is being controlled by these unmet desires and that frustration, so often that drives us away from God because we don't trust him. And we take matters into our own hands and we take that out on the other people around us. He says, you're not even going to God. And then he says, and even when you do go to God, Verse three, he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. To spend it on your own passions. What he's saying here is, even when you go to God, you don't go to God as your father or as your Lord. You go to God like a vending machine and just give you what you want or what you think you need. Now, last week I was at my brother's birthday party and I was sitting by a friend of mine. She's an ER doctor at Inova uh, Fairfax. And so I'm sitting down and I'm asking her a bunch of questions that she don't feel like answering. She, she's tired. She didn't work the night shift. She don't feel like answering all these questions to satisfy my curiosity about the ER. But I'm asking them anyway, right? And so we get into a conversation and then she says something to me. She says, listen, Mike, a doctor's, you know what a doctor's worst nightmare is? WebMD. I know you're laughing. I know, because you didn't take out on people too. I told her, my family then is your worst nightmare. Because by the time we show up, we already, we already know what's wrong. <laughs> Doc, I can save you some time. Like, I already, I've already diagnosed my, I already know what the problem is. And I just need you to give me what I need. And for me, it's going to be the same thing every time. Just give me antibiotics. It could be a broken limb, a jammed thumb. It don't matter. Just give me antibiotics, right? I, I got it, Doc. And this is what James is saying we do with God. That we come to God, he's not just, when he says you you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, he's not just talking about selfishness. He is talking about selfishness, but he's also talking about arrogance. That you come to God wanting him to do something for you, and you already have laid out what you need him to do for you because it's that other person's fault. You need, the, you need God to fix that person. You need God to give you this thing that you want or that you think you need from this person or somehow around this person or above this person. So you come to God wanting him to do something for you, and that's not bad. The problem is it never crosses your mind that God might want to do something in you. And this is why I said you have to start with the right problem because when you're in conflict with somebody, when you come to God, listen, God is going to diagnose your problem first. And so often we come to God like, "I, I got this. I don't actually need your wisdom. I don't need your perspective. I just need you to do what I've already decided I want. I need you to serve what I've already committed myself to. And that's why James says in verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this might seem random in the context of conflict, but let me clarify. James is not saying that we can't be friends as Christians. We can't be friends with unbelievers. That's not what he means here by friendship with the world. The word world here is referring to a selfish way of thinking and living. And friendship is another way of describing loyalty. And what James is saying here is, You're claiming to have a relationship with God, but your loyalty is elsewhere. And that becomes evident when you're in conflict. That when the pressure is on and you're angry and you feel like you're not getting what you desire or what you deserve or whatever it is, in that moment, it becomes evident what you're actually most committed to. When you have a choice about whether or not you're going to honor God in this situation, even, though, even if it means hold your tongue, even if it means repay somebody being mean to you with kindness, 
When you have a decision to make about whether or not you're going to honor God by honoring this person, we are tempted to say, I got this, God. I'll be right back with you. Let me go ahead and check this person real quick. Let me take matters into my own hands and pursue what I'm actually most committed to, which is my respect, which is my peace and quiet, which is whatever it is that I'm desiring, that I'm more committed to that than I am to pleasing you and honoring you and submitting to your authority. And James says, you adulterous people, which sounds harsh. And it's strong language, but it's also a beautiful picture because what James is acknowledging and he's drawing from is this picture throughout the Bible that God, even though we're sinners, even though we had irreconcilable differences with God, even though we had conflict with God that we could not resolve on our own, God pursued us in his mercy. He pursued us, and he made it possible for us in Jesus to be in a covenant relationship with him. And the Bible describes this relationship as a marriage in the Old Testament, that his old covenant people were were like his bride, and whenever they would chase idols and idolatry and not trust God, he would call it adultery. And in the New Testament, in Jesus, Jesus becomes the bridegroom, and the church, the redeemed people of God, become his bride. And it's this beautiful picture of his grace that he has made it possible for us to have a relationship with him because he has pursued us when we didn't deserve it. He's pursued us when we've offended him. He's pursued us when we have violated his love. He made it possible for us to enjoy a covenant relationship by doing the unimaginable and sending Jesus, the Son of God, to die on the cross for our sins, to shed his blood as an atonement for all of our wickedness and sin. And he rose from the grave and he offers his spirit. This is what God did for us in Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, it means, listen, you're married to God. We're married to God. And when we say, but I'm going to pursue my desires outside of what is appropriate for my relationship with God, James says it is spiritual adultery down at the root of how you respond to conflict. And so we think there's my side and there's their side. And James says, no. No, that's actually not the choice. The real choice, the fundamental choice is are you going to align with God or are you going to align against God? Because God wants to do something in the midst of that conflict. He wants to accomplish something in you and through you and in and through others in the midst of that conflict. And you can be a participant and submit to what God wants to do and align yourself with him or you can take matters into your own hands and you can align yourself against God. You cannot do both. Now, at that point, after James done called all of us adulterers, you would think that he would follow up with and therefore God's going to cut you off. But look at what it says in verse 5. It says, or do do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? In other words, what he's saying here is, listen, God doesn't cut us off. Even if you're sitting and, 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 and right now there's all kinds of drama and conflict and you know that it's your fault or you know that you played a part in it and there's things that you say that you wish you could take back and you couldn't and there's ways that you've hurt people and ways that you've dishonored God. He says God has not given up on you. He's jealous for you. He desires a relationship with you. He wants more for you. He wants better for you. He wants better for your family. He wants better for your friend circle. He wants better for your relationships at work. He loves you and he's going to keep pursuing you because he wants your heart. Because he delights in you and he enjoys you and because he knows what's best for you. And so he enables you. That's what he means in verse 6. He says, but he gives more grace. 
not just to forgive you, but to empower you to change. And therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. And so not only do you need to start with the right problem, which is James's emphasis here, but if you want to handle conflict differently, then you also have to have the right posture, the right posture. And that's what James says here as he closes out these verses. Verse 7, he says, so once you acknowledge that you need to change, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you're like, where did the devil come in at? James said, the devil's been in the mix the whole time. This is what he does. This is how he moves. When we talked about that spiral from I want to I punish, he's saying, you thought that you were just moving through that spiral based on your own desires. No, the devil was dragging you and enticing you through that spiral. Why? Because he steals, he kills, and he destroys. And spiritual warfare is not always some exorcism. Spiritual warfare is drama. Spiritual warfare is unresolved conflict. Spiritual warfare is those things that you just say in passing without thinking that create a ripple effect in your relationships and in the heart of another person. So James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is the posture. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's that's change your behavior and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's you got you to gotta get down to those root issues in your heart and lay those things before God. And he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He's talking about the right posture, that it starts with the right posture. There's so much more to talk about in conflict resolution. There's good communication and there's mediation and there's all these things. But God is saying through James, where it starts is is you understanding and having the right diagnosis of the right problem and it starts with the problem that is in you. And then before you say anything to anybody or do anything, you have to then move to the right posture and that is to humble yourself first and foremost before God. And here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. It means that you admit to God first that you have contributed to the conflict. That's what it looks like to humble yourself before God, to say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've contributed to this in some way. I've been out of pocket. I have not been in line with your will and how you want me to operate or respond in this situation. And I am humbling myself before you in confession and in repentance. And so let me, let me show you practically what this looks like. And then I want to invite you to just take some time to just reflect between you and the Lord. I had a counseling professor who taught me something that I call the responsibility circle. Here's what I mean by the responsibility circle. If you have a conflict with somebody and the circle represents that conflict, if I was sitting down with you, I would ask you, what percentage of that conflict did you contribute to? Now, if God still has some work to do in your heart and you're not humble yet, you'd be like, six and a half percent. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, cool. That's between you and the Lord, six and a half percent. Okay, six and a half. So now there's that circle. Your little piece of the pie is six and a half percent. That's what you've contributed to the conflict and the issue. Okay, here's what humble yourself before God means. It means this, that God says to you, you are 100 percent responsible for working on that six and a half percent. This is what Jesus meant when he said, take the log out of your own eye first before you point out the speck in somebody else's eye. You are 100% responsible before God for working on and changing that 6.5% that you have contributed that is your fault. You say, but hold on, hold on. I can't even do math. What is that? What's the math on that? 93.5% left? Is that right? 
something like that. Yeah, about 93% left. But God, 93% is their fault. God says, humble yourself before me. Take your eyes off of what they are responsible for and what they've done just for a second. Not for the whole thing. that You got to get to that. But you want to start with the right posture. What do you need to change? What do you need to confess? How do you need to repent? Where do you need to apologize? You humble yourself before God first, whether you're 60 or you're 16. That thing that you said to your friend, the way you just iced them out of your friend circle because they just, and you didn't even have a conversation. You didn't, you didn't ask what they meant. You didn't ask, you didn't share with them that they hurt you. You just completely cut them off. Maybe your first step needs to be to take responsibility for what you've contributed and to do that first before God, to confess that to God. And then to go deeper, not just to confess what you did wrong, but to get down deep to the actual core desire that drove you to respond that way to begin with. And God says he gives more grace. And when you humble yourself like that, I know it feels like you're out, but God, but what, what, what about what they've done? What about, God says, trust me. I give you, I'll give you, I'll meet you with grace when you humble yourself at the point of your humility. I will meet you with grace. I will enable you to do what you need to do as you trust me to work that situation out. So here's what I want us to do as we close. I want to give you a moment very practically to just reflect between you and God. Because I trust that as we've been talking, there are situations that have come up for you. And I want to ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to just give you a couple seconds to just let the Holy Spirit bring something to the surface of your mind. Here, online, at, at all of our locations. And I'm going to lead you to, to direct that to God. Here's the first question. Who have you had a recent conflict with? Think of a person that made you feel angry or frustrated or hurt. And listen, maybe it wasn't a recent conflict. Maybe it's a conflict that actually has been going on for a long time, but you're, you're still feeling the effects of it now. Your heart is still controlled by your anger and your frustration and hurt now. The conflict wasn't recent, but the effects are still very recent. Who is that person for you? Now, how did you respond in that situation? How did you respond? And this don't have to be super deep. One of the things that came to my mind as I was praying through this is I was flying this week and I, we land, everybody's getting up and a dude came from all the way in the back and just cut through everybody and violated all the airplane rules and he's standing right beside me. Y'all, it is embarrassing how hot I was and how I very much so finessed my way in front of this dude. I did it with gentleness. It doesn't even have to be a dramatic situation. But how did you respond in that situation? you think about it specifically, not just I got angry, but what did that actually look like? What did you feel? What did you say? What did you do? And then here's the last question. I want you to go deeper. What was the desire that drove you to respond that way? Think about it. What was it that you were wanting that you weren't getting? What did you think you deserved that you weren't getting? What were you demanding that you weren't getting? What was the desire that drove you? For me, it was respect. This dude disrespected me by just not taking his place in line.
Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a moment between you and the Lord, and I actually want you to take the first step of cleansing your hands and purifying your heart. What I want you to do is I want you to just confess to God, this is how I responded. This is how I have been responding in this situation. And God, I don't want to just confess how I responded. I confess to you the way this particular desire has gotten out of control in my heart and begun to control me more than you, God. I don't want you to turn that toward God. God, I, I want it. I want respect. I want, I just want his attention. I want him to actually see me. And I haven't handled that the best way, and it's been producing conflict, and I've been contributing to that. And God, I just, I need to know that you see me. God, I want you to turn that into confession before God. How did you respond? Tell God. And what is that desire that drove you to respond that way? And direct that desire to the Lord. Take a moment between you and God, and then either I or one of the pastors or leaders at your location is going to follow up to close us out. Take a moment. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would experience what you promised here in your word, that when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us, and that you will give us the grace that we need to humble ourselves before you and out of the overflow of that to humble ourselves before others. I pray you would help us to do that, Lord, and that you would give us specific wisdom for the next steps that you want us to take. And Father, I pray for those who are listening to this message who have not yet solved their deepest problem, which is their conflict with you. I pray, God, today that you would lead them, Lord, to trust in your love that was displayed on the cross, Lord, when you sent Jesus to die for their sins and my sins and he rose from the grave. Lord, I pray, God, that you would forgive them and save them as they acknowledge their sin before you and trust in Jesus, Lord, and that you would reconcile them to yourself. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that covers a multitude of sins and your great love. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.